This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist's Intrepid Journeys, adapted from his book Pedal Power. Roy Sinclair and his partner Harleko from Japan fly to the French Riviera, cycle north of Nice, encountering a culture quite unlike Scotland's. Sleepless nights by firelight, the stranger in this town. To bike in unfamiliar foreign lands, it's best to study the lie of the land before encountering the reality of it. In the United Kingdom, it's easy to access topographical maps at local libraries, showing contours that disclose where the road rises steeply or falls into valleys. It's not so easy for us to find maps of that kind in southern France, not even in the Collins Road Atlas of France, on which we rely to plan our route. So we're delighted to come upon a stationer's shop in the isolated village of Gouillist, as it displays a plastic relief map of France, foretelling the strenuous effort that lies ahead, roads reaching into the high Alps that cram along the frontier on one edge of France. The graphic projection of mountains makes our route seem somewhat dramatic, stunning my much fitter, younger, and better-looking cycling companion into doubt. Sadly, I've still to learn that Japanese culture demands a predictable life, defined plan, and no unintended consequences. This dramatic revelation of tortuous geography and wilderness in our path leaves Harleko feeling insecure. Yet... It's these aspects tourism exploits, with spectacular roads reaching remote areas for their unspoiled beauty, giving prosperity to communities catering to foreign sightseers who notice everything which is done in different ways. Take Nice, for example. Not, as we observe, very attractive on its outer edge as we pass signs defaced by graffiti, pavements peppered in dog's poo, there being no requirement, as in Britain, to collect one's dog's poo, where even bins may be dedicated to this form of litter. Here we come upon three terriers, neatly in line, gleefully depositing their worst, while their master shows a little exasperation. As the wide valley west of Nice narrows, we enter a region of perched villages, hewn from rock, sometimes overhanging huge perpendicular drops. Such is the horrid history of the tiny village of Derenus, known as the Jump of the French. In 1793 A.D., revolutionary fervour spreads across France like a pandemic, pitting revolutionary and royalist against each other. In the village, the foment goes too far. Captured soldiers of the realm face death, if, opposing the republican form of government, they stay loyal to the monarchy, although King Louis the Sixteenth is already tried, convicted, and guillotined for treason that year. In Duranus, 
It doesn't spare loyalists captured defending the city and region of Nice. They're forced on the order. Salt! Salt! Pull our republic! To leap out into the void. We stand near where they did, contemplating that 300 metres drop over the precipice to their doom. Today, a car is threading its way along that valley far below. It's now a modern highway above the gorge, compared with my memories of cycling in the southern Alps. Our Otira Gorge is a mere pothole. Around this dramatic valley of France, Cumulus cloud shrouds the peaks. We're unsure of the weather. An afternoon that begins brightly with exhilarating fast descent through forest becomes a wearisome climb rising towards a jagged horizon. Now it's thunder rolling in the distance, rattling around the mountains. As its first big drops fall, we take shelter at a bus stop. To Harlequin's dismay, I fall asleep. When I wake an hour later, Harlequin says it's raining steadily and shows no sign of letting up. If we're to get anywhere, we need our wet weather gear to brave the storm. Luckily, it's the last rain we strike in France. Soon, we're sodden. Our asking directions to a camping ground recommended at Roquebelier, using gesture and laughter, has French and English in such a tangle... It's Harlico who spies far below the road, looking soggy beside a rushing mountain stream, the elusive campground. We pick our way down to its reception desk to meet there a short, kindly man whose welcome is a beaming smile. Communication is hard, yet we see how intrigued in our travels he is. His legs, smooth and muscled, betray his own passion for biking, as we talk, he draws a diagram to illustrate his point. It's a pyramid. In one corner, he notes our altitude, 873 meters. At the apex, he prints 2,802 meters. I'm getting the drift, but for the moment, I'm too tired to let much register. All will be revealed when we actually face the climb tomorrow. For the moment... We're content to know its name. Seam de la Bonnette. The camp's rated as two-star. We know the English holidaying in France attract ridicule for bringing their own tea bags. Till now, however, we'd not known the need to supply our own toilet paper. There's no hot shower. We pitch our tent overlooking the semi-derelict old part of the village of Roquebelier buildings heaped one upon the other, as evening dims the outdoors. I'm astonished to see windows light up. Folk live there. After dark, drawn to their display of domestic warmth, we reconnoiter. Yes, they inhabit these centuries-old houses. An avenue of trees leads us to a 16th-century clock tower, lit up and still going. Trouble is... It's difficult to tell the time of day in a village whose clock's chimes are spasmodic, unsynchronized, not always on the hour.
Lights of another kind puzzle me, dancing among trees and rocks beside the bubbling stream. For the first time in my life, I'm seeing fireflies. While shopping at a supermarket for an assortment of bread, salad, and cold meats, we acquire our first topographical map of the region, reassured to see most of the Alps lie across the Italian border. We'll face lesser altitudes in France. The map is calibrated in kilometres, which are now more familiar to us than old-fashioned miles of Britain. Transition between one system and the other can be confusing. Now, riding the route des Grandes Alpes, we resume cycling a steady uphill gradient that takes us to a valley at 1,000 metres altitude. There's little traffic, so a car coming towards us is an attraction, the more so because a large black and white dog hangs its paws out of the window, barking furiously. It dawns on me, something is radically wrong. The driver's window, or, or so I thought. If we spoke doggy language, we'd have got the message. Hey, you foreigners, get on the right side of the road. I'm relieved. So it's not the dog actually driving that car. We reach the top of the pass, La Comienne, where cafes and hotels gather. I try to order food in French. A cafe owner responds, English is fine. On the menu is a generous slice of a baguette, our choice of an array of fillings, all wrapped in foil. It's a makeover of the humble English sandwich, made to appease European appetite for nutritious, tasty and economic fuel for outdoor activity. No doubt skiing's popular here in winter. The climb has taken a toll. Harlico doubts we'll make our destination. Secretly, I wonder if we'll reach anywhere on this road by the end of the day at this rate, pleasant though it is. To our delight, the next stage of the journey's a long, fast descent adds kilometres quickly, then a gentle gradient along a gorge and tumbling river to an alpine village, Isola, that features a dedicated cycleway to the campground. What's more, the camp boasts hot showers, seats on the toilets, and toilet paper holders, but no toilet paper. On balmy summer evenings like this, we dine on cold pickings. Actually, there's no screw-top canister we can buy to match our imperial measure portable gas bottle. My mind dismisses the dream of tomorrow gaining height equivalent to 2,000 vertical metres, including cycling tomorrow up to Seme de la Bonnette. That's the notation the last campground owner drew, a simple diagram to communicate to us the immensity, if not risk, of what we're taking on. It shows the altitude, 2,802 metres. That's all we know but it doesn't spoil a good night's sleep. Over breakfast, the word bonnet keeps coming up in the conversation of other cyclists, spoken with respect, even awe, by Belgian and German guests. As I glance at my 62-year-old legs, I'm satisfied to see them now nuggety, tanned by our travels. 
I've acquired through my younger years the theory that such legs on aging men are not for lazing about. These are legs of men busy outdoors, doing something energetic and adventurous. They're likely to tie their own fishing lures to cast in remote rivers, tricking old trout from their hideouts. Men who cling to cliffs defying gravity. So, on consulting the contour lines on our brand new topographical map, I wonder if we're up to cycling the scene de la Bonnette. It's coming closer. As we head out of the solar, past the green lake that's part of the campground, we see the dark green forest give way to bare alpine scree and rock. The morning is crisp, a setting similar to New Zealand's mountains. With this difference, our altitude is that of New Zealand's highest road passes already, yet with 40 kilometres of uphill cycling still to come. Along the route, we stop at Saint-Étienne-de-Tigné, a village whose citizens survive a disastrous fire in the 1930s to preserve the original covered passageways and pastel-shade facades now catering to tourists, skiers, cyclists and mountaineers. It's alive to the playground cries of children. Relaxed in the village square, we drink iced tea and wonder why New Zealand lacks architectural flair or money to stimulate such authentic village atmosphere in our scenic outposts, even in Arthur's Pass. It's a question to occupy my mind as we resume the hard grind upwards, leaving Saint-Étienne de Tine way below. We follow the signs to Seine de la Bonnette, expecting a narrow mountain road, but motor traffic is surprisingly sparse. We're being overtaken by increasing numbers of French cyclists. Their outfits are flashy lycra. A highly elastic fabric an American chemist discovers half a century before, seeming to enhance Olympian achievement. It may take more than lycra to advance my performance. Sometimes, if I take the lead cycling, I know it won't be for long. Harlico will pass me. Though they come lightly laden on specialized cycles of superior design and trade names unfamiliar to me, the French cyclists embrace us in the camaraderie that surrounds their national sport and pastime. Road markers every kilometre display the distance to the next destination, in our case, to Col de la Bonnette. The peak itself is farther beyond. Ascending through the last high-altitude pasture interspersed with trees, we steadily expand our vista. The Alps take on a grandeur in which humans are insignificant. It's here a stranger's spontaneous gesture of friendship arises for Harlico as I slowly pedal up the mountain from below to meet her. On arriving, I see, proudly displayed, strapped to her pannier, a posy of roadside wildflowers like tiny foxgloves. Now she recounts how she comes by an unexpected symbol of friendship. Carried on her younger legs, Harlico's free to go ahead of me, intending we reunite at the next hamlet, Busias, too tiny for any but big-scale maps to display. I steadily struggle up a very steep hairpin bend, 
Soon the road narrows to squeeze between a small old church and a cafe. She awaits, eager to share the story of a stranger in passing, perhaps one of those that overtook us on the steep gradient. Stopping beside her, the stranger proffers the wild flowers, Mademoiselle, and disappears in the same way as we are bound. Delighted at the polite stranger's choice of her to receive the wild flowers, Halico puts the posy beside other treasures carried on her pannier rack. It's from within the pannier she produces the baguette, tomatoes, packaged salads and juicy oranges to accompany our lunch. Close by, a woman stops her car from down the valley, not for our sake, but to deliver a bundle of mail and to empty the yellow post box. It's the briefest of stops to collect the mail for sorting back down where she came from. We're witnessing the highest delivery and collection point of La Poste, the French postal network. We're off again. Halico will soon be ahead of me. Both bikes carry snack food to fuel our muscles and water bottles for refreshing parched throats. It's quite quiet up here, highlighting it. A distant tinkle of bells. Soon a small mob of sheep appears, led by a brown-horned goat. How much might such small flocks yield an economic return for their owners? While New Zealanders farming livestock need large mobs of sheep or cattle to be worth their while. No publicity demonstrates this better than New Zealand National Film Unit's documentary Whale Ago, revealing a young musterer's life on a vast 56,000 hectare South Island sheep station where his shrill whistles command the sheepdogs to muster sheep even in mountains. France's Alps are more remarkable for their formidable barrier to invaders on a frontier with Italy. And exceptions when Napoleon Bonaparte sends 60,000 troops into Italy across the Alps. It ensures supremacy of France over much of Europe for a time. The military genius is portrayed in Paul Delaroche's famous 1848 painting, showing Napoleon astride a sure-footed brown mule, today's equivalent to a mountain bike rather than an imposing white stallion. Years later, to make the road easier to negotiate, Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew, Napoleon III, in 1860, designates this to be a strategic imperial route. It's upgraded and paved to encourage motor touring, though from our experience it's attracting as many cyclists as motorists. Mountain bikers' gears enable pedals to spin easily, adjusting to the incline, however steep. It's the enormity of the climb that wearies a long-distance cyclist. I count down the kilometres, slowly ticking by. Our journey takes on an alarming aspect, skirting precipitous drops to the side. The view seems foreshortened. Our surroundings take on a new perspective, as when a mountaineer nears a summit. If a vehicle comes by, leaving less of the roadway to share, we fear falling off the edge. Harlico's bike has lost the rivet holding the front derailleur together. With her nimble fingers, she's repaired it with PVC sticky tape. If it falls apart, there won't be any bike shops up here to fix it.
In our zigzags across the mountainside, Harlico's already riding the next zig of the zag above me. Trusting we'll reunite once we both reach the top of the pass. With all this physical exertion, my mind drifts again to when we cycled in Japan. A lovely lady, her bicycle leads me down a misting street. Traditional wooden buildings either side. Parks her red bicycle outside a small, cosy restaurant. glance to see I'm still following. And then it happens. Two happy cyclists stand on Col de la Bonnette. One is Harlico, the other Dave, whose pair of tight, gaudy underpants reveal all his important contours with a shirtless chest, nicely tanned, trimmed and muscled. And he's young.
I join them. From Yorkshire in England, he now lives in Germany. A cycling enthusiast, he often comes to France for the spectacular descents not found elsewhere in France. His girlfriend has no interest in mountain biking. Dave explains the French engineers built an extension of the sealed road through Scree to loop round the peak's volcanic dome higher up. This ensures France has the highest sealed road in Europe. Dave advises us to go on to the top before our descent from the pass, while his route lies down in the direction whence we came. As he's about to disappear, Dave names the bar where he recommends we stop for its cold beer during our descent to Josier. As Dave's bright underpants vanish over the crest of the Col de la Vanette, Oh, he's so handsome, so handsome, says Harleco. I smile. Dave's a likable guy. Now I feel a little less guilt for my recent distraction of mind, that Japanese lady riding the red bicycle. feel free to join us next week at the same time for another in the series of adventures of Harleco and Roy Sinclair as they experience the travels in France. <laughs> 
Historic Souvenirs is broadcast on Free FM 89.0, proudly supported by New Zealand On Air. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.